Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we are talking about women and cults. And to kick things off, we thought we would start at the very worst end of the spectrum in terms of women's involvement in cults. Because I think when a lot of us hear the word cult... We think of Charles Manson and the family and the, the number of women who he attracted to his cult. Yeah, I think when people talk about cults or think about women's invo- involvement, they do tend to think of what we call destructive cults, not necessarily the groups of people who come together and actually provide a safety net for one another, provide a sense of community and love and all of that wonderful stuff. We today are focusing more on the destructive end of the spectrum, and certainly the Manson family plays into that. What's so interesting about Manson is that when he ended up in San Francisco back in 1967, he hung out with a bunch of hippies and ended up developing kind of a huge following, mostly of young women who were disillusioned with the state of affairs in America at the time. And he actually had a lot of women. And if you're familiar with Manson, you know all this, but he had a lot of women essentially doing his bidding. Yeah, when it uh, came down to the trials dealing with the LaBianca murders, which were the most infamous of the Manson family crimes, uh, which involved the murdering of Sharon Tate, who was eight months pregnant at the time, and others, there were three women who were sentenced to death, um, which those sentences were then commuted to life sentences after California did away with the death penalty. Um, but it was Leslie Van Houten, Susan Atkins, and then Patricia Krenwinkel. And Krenwinkel has talked in recent years about her experience in the family because initially one of the most disturbing things for people, you know, in the early seventies watching these trials happening was just a lack of remorse of all of these very young women who were brutally murdering these other people. And so Krenwinkel, for instance, um, I think she played a part in seven murders. Uh, she stabbed one person in the LaBianca murders so brutally that the police thought that her nightgown had just been bought red. She played a role in seven of the Manson family murders because um, it is thought that Manson didn't actually murder anyone. He just had all of his followers do his murderous bidding. And in the LaBianca murders, for instance, Krenwinkel stabbed one of the women so many times, I think it was like 60 plus times, that the police thought that the white nightgown she had been wearing well, it was actually originally red. Um, she ended up being though the longest serving and still is the longest serving female inmate in the California penal system. Um, but now looking back on it, she has said, quote, I wanted to feel like someone would care for me. And I know going into this podcast, Caroline, to learn about women and cults, that was the idea that that I had of why a lot of women would join these so-called destructive cults, Mm -hmm. that they are looking for something, that they are perhaps these lost lambs looking for a shepherd, if you will, to put it in uh, like horrifyingly inappropriate terms in reference to Charles Manson as a shepherd. Right. Well, I mean, I think 
I don't think you're wrong in putting it that way. I think a lot of cult leaders definitely seek to fill that sort of role in terms of shepherding people in one direction or another, whether that's a positive uh, direction or not. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to look at the stereotypes of people who join cults because, yeah, we... We just tend to assume that everyone who joins a cult is brainwashed and weak-willed. And while it's true that a lot of people, men and women who join these groups, do tend to be looking for something, there's sort of a, a, a common baseline of of maybe being in a transitional period and, and seeking something, which is also the reason a lot of people do find religion as well, not just a cult. There's just a whole lot more to it, and it's interesting to see that there really is a full range, a full spectrum of people who join cults and a full spectrum of reasons for doing so. So let's take a look first at how a cult, and a destructive cult in particular, differs from other types of religious or group organizations. And this is coming from Adrian Furnham, who's a psychology professor at University College of London. And so Fernum says that whether the cult is based on religious or political or self-help foundational reasons, they have a bunch of recognizable characteristics. Typically, they have a powerful dedication or devotion to an explicit person or creed. One huge one is the use of thought reform programs to get people to believe everything that is said within the confines of the cult. And they all tend to share recruitment selection and socialization processes, too. And going off of the whole thought reform thing, there's also efforts to maintain psychological and physical dependency among cult members. They work hard to reprogram the way people see the world. Um, there's a consistent exploitation of group members specifically to advance the goals of that leader, the cult leader. And another big one is the fact that a lot of cults will pull people out of their common and familiar surroundings and bring them into different and unfamiliar settings that have totally different rules and behavior patterns to cut off members from family and friends outside. So the question then is, why do people join cults to begin with? Because obviously at this point, cults have a negative connotation in our society, largely due to, say, the actions of uh, the Manson family or even uh, the Jonestown cult, which drank the poison Kool-Aid and mm-hmm. 900 people died as a result of that. Um, so there's a lot of stereotyping, as Fernham talks about, that goes into our ideas of why people would want to join up with these rather infamous groups. And Fernham writes, all too often we explain strange, unexpected behavior, like joining a cult, in terms of the dispositions of others, that they're poor, gullible, naive, indoctrinated members who have quite defective personalities. But we explain more common behaviors in terms of the appeal of an accepted group's philosophy, leader, or benefits. Thus, he says, the idea is that sad inadequates join cults, but altruistic, caring people join the church. And so, he says, if you look a little bit deeper at the way we sort of condemn people who join cults versus a lot of other people who join, say, churches, then there's a lot of moralizing that goes on in this stereotyping, when in truth, 
Members of cults show surprisingly large diversities in terms of age, career backgrounds, education, ideology, and talents. There isn't just one stock cult member in the same way that there isn't just one stock member of a major religion. Right, exactly. And where religions, uh, organized religions and cults intersect is what they offer members. And a lot of times that's friendship, identity, respect, security, community. And cults also offer a worldview. And Furnham writes about how um, a cult leader or the leadership of a cult will provide members with sort of a black and white, right and wrong, good and bad version of existence, of reality, of the world, of society. And that's really, really comforting for people who maybe are in that transitional period and who are seeking something. And the International Journal of Cultic Studies in February 2014 kind of expanded on this idea of wanting to belong to a community. And they talk about how the propensity for individuals to be drawn to non-kin groups is hardwired. You have narcissistic cult leaders who are adept at creating these cohesive groups that become attractive to people who are most drawn to these non-kin groups, people like altruists, idealists, and transcendence seekers. Now, there are some hallmark psychological traits of cult members broadly. Um, and this is coming from Michael Langone, who's a psychologist who specializes in cults, who I have a feeling is also quite entertaining at dinner parties. I would imagine. Um, and he talks about how there's a lot of disillusionment with the status quo going on. So think of, for instance, those girls in the 1960s mm-hmm. flocking to hate Ashbury who had left their homes and met this guy named Charles Manson. They were like, hey, you play guitar. <laughs> Let's hang out. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, the naive idealism, uh, a blind belief that everyone is good, including perhaps narcissistic or even sociopathic cult leaders. And then a desire for spiritual Meaning that need to believe that life has a higher purpose. And these three hallmarks, again, jive with probably a lot of what drives people to seek fulfillment through those non-kin groups, whether it is in uh, a church or a synagogue or a mosque or, you know, the, the living room of a cult group. But when it comes to cults, the fact that you also have the isolation, especially if it's a destructive cult, the isolation factors, the brainwashing, these very specific manipulative mm-hmm. recruitment techniques, that also plays on psychological traits that sort of foster dependency and gullibility and unassertiveness, uh, fostering a reluctance to question right. what you're being told. Yeah, and that's exactly how these cults recruit, retain, and control their people. Destructive cults demand total compliance and conformity. There's no individuality that exists within a destructive cult. They use heavy persuasive techniques. And by heavy, I mean this could involve forcing members to take drugs or uh, keeping them sleep-deprived, things like that. And a big one, too, is creating dissonance and using emotional manipulation. And that plays into a lot of what psychotherapist Shelley Rosen, who was writing in the Cultic Studies Journal in 1997, talked about when she looked at why women in particular join cults. So she takes an overall look first at women in society. Broad brushstrokes here, folks. 
she talks about how, like, thanks to advances in society, second wave feminism, women are able to hold more powerful roles outside of the home, in society. But they're also receiving conflicting messages telling them to maintain their feminine identities. Add to that that people in general yearn for mentors and direction, but maybe women aren't receiving enough mentorship or direction in their personal lives or their careers. And then there's a little bit of room for seeking that out. And so Rosen writes about how cults really appear to be, quote, communities that include values of cooperation and nurturance while expressing power and success. And they appear to offer the answers about how to cope in today's world. But the irony of all of this is, um, based on her work with past female cult members, Rosen says that a lot of times women are initially drawn to cults as a way to gain power and influence while merging that with sort of a caregiving role because a lot of these small cults are very much into tight-knit communities. And sometimes, I mean, we're talking like very, very tight uh, to the point of you can't get out. And unlike the stereotype of the fawning female cult member who is simply being, who ha- doesn't have much between her ears and is simply being led astray, um, by some like male sociopath, uh, Rosen writes that, quote, women who join cults are intelligent, active and seeking to make an impact. And yet uh, they <laughs> might end up in these groups because at first they go to their first meeting or, or course or group outing, whatever it might be. And it seems comforting. But the more enmeshed they become into this group, the more obviously they tend to lose their power. Right. And I mean, she ta- in terms of power, she she talks about how women who are seeking a certain type of power that is non-competitive and non-threatening, they, they really will gravitate to groups like this because, oh, here's a strong leader. So I'm not the boss. I don't have to worry about like leading the charge and changing society, but I can buy into this person's vision of XYZ, of society, of whatever, and help work towards a common goal. But in reality, cults, destructive cults definitely don't provide the type of support that this image of a woman that uh, Rosen is painting is looking for. So what are they doing joining? And this is where we get into the idea of semiotic incompetence. And that goes back to earlier when I mentioned cults creating dissonance and emotional manipulation. Semiotic incompetence is basically what happens when you go into a situation expecting something And then something else starts to happen and you start to feel awkward and uncomfortable because things aren't quite matching up. Expectations are not matching reality. And maybe you don't know why. Maybe you can't put your finger on what it is, but it definitely creates a feeling of insecurity and um, really discomfort, basically. And she talks about the reason that this plays into more of a quote unquote female thing, according to Rosen, is that in our culture, we tend to typically be raised to think that people are good and they mean what they say and we should trust them and we shouldn't question them. Um, And so once women are involved in destructive cultic groups, they can become anxious, depressed, confused and dissociated. They can't figure out why things don't feel right. Well, in addition to playing into those gender dynamics, perhaps a lot of these destructive cults will often enforce specific kinds of female targeted tactics to 
keep them sort of at the mercy of the cult. Uh, so Marsha Rudden, who's the director of the International Cult Education Program, uh, was talking about how pregnant women in cults in particular, uh, for instance, going, I know I keep harping on the Manson family, but for instance, um, one of, I have, her name is sli- slipping my mind right now, but she actually had Charles Manson's child, um, Pooh Bear, while she was a member of the family. She has since, of course, uh, left and is now living anonymously in the Midwest. But she was pregnant for a time in this cult. And so Rudden talks about how pregnant women in cults might receive little, if any, prenatal care, delivering in unsanitary conditions, being forced to leave children behind if they leave the cult. Um, because this is also playing into the fact that when it comes to the, the one hallmark of a destructive cult, as opposed to say, sort of a small cultish group that's totally fine and not destroying lives, is that isolation factor. So on top of the, if you're pregnant, not receiving prenatal care, education is often highly restricted. If you have a child in a cult, one of these destructive cults, they will probably receive little, if any, formal education. Um, Hare Krishna, for instance, taught that women aren't smart enough for school because their sole job really is to be a homemaker. Right, exactly. And of course, in destructive cults, the issue of sexual abuse is a huge one. And this is coming from Donja Lalik in Cultic Studies Journal in 1997. She was writing about how sexual control is seen as the final step in objectification of the cult member by the authoritarian leader who's able to satisfy his needs through psychological manipulation leading to sexual exploitation. And so here's where we get into the very uncomfortable parallels between cults, cult members and the charismatic narcissistic leaders and how they use all of these sexual and manipulative tactics and abusive relationships, manipulative relationships. And the fact that women who get out of either one of them, a cult, a destructive cult or an abusive relationship tend to suffer things like PTSD because their whole worldview has been so warped for so long. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So in terms of the sexual abuse that a lot of women in destructive cults face, one aspect is the fact that their entire sexuality or sex lives, in addition to rules about marriage and procreation, are controlled, manipulated and exploited, just like any other part of their lives as part of a cult. And the sexual abuse definitely isn't random. In fact, it may actually be be sold as an integral, accepted part of the cult's whole system. Yeah, you hear stories about destructive cults in which um, group sex might be forced or, you know, women passed around to male members of the cults to do their sexual bidding. Obviously, the cult leader, who is usually male, um, having full sexual access to female members of the cult, all kinds of things like that happening. And a lot of times, though, if there is this kind of abuse happening, your willingness to go through with it is often framed as a matter of duty, honor and loyalty to the cult. And at that, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will talk more about women in cults and whether they're actually more likely than men to join. So stick with us. question that we haven't addressed yet is are women likelier to join cults? I think up to this point in the podcast we've sort of been operating on the assumption that a lot of cults are framed as uh, men 
sort of attracting groups of other men, but also a lot of women being mm-hmm. willing to do this. Um, and one of the reasons why we wanted to do this podcast in the first place was because of an article in the Guardian newspaper that came out in January 2014, which said that women make up 70% of global cult members. So we immediately said, oh, well, we must do a podcast on cults. However, statistics, actual confirmed data on cults is rather hard to come by. Yeah, this was an article written by Jemima Thackeray, who is a minister. And, you know, Kristen, uh, as much time as I spent researching for this episode, I could not find, A, anything to back up the 70% stat. But B, I just couldn't find really numbers in general. I mean, I think a lot of people speculate that women are more likely to join cults because of various reasons like, oh, they're just used to being oppressed. And that that's kind of Thackeray's argument in this Guardian article. Um, she says that women are much more susceptible to being seduced by religious cults than men are. And she says that part of the problem is that in many cultures, women are less well-educated than men, are less empowered, and therefore are more attracted to the illusion of security that a cult offers. And she was writing about this in the context of a Brazilian man who at the time was claiming to be Jesus reincarnated. And there are photos of him surrounded by a host of young women and so I, and I think that that is the prevailing idea that we have in terms of what a cult looks like. It's a, a guy surrounded by a host of young women, um, which I think is part of what disturbs us so much about cults to begin with, is specifically destructive cults, because there is that question of how how is that happening? But I think, Caroline, that uh, your analogy to abusive relationships is spot on, because when you think about the hallmarks of a lot of these narcissistic, possibly sociopathic, um, destructive cult leaders, they often have the psychological profiles of what's called the dark triad, which is what shows up in literature about um, and academic literature about the quote unquote bad boys in our society and why some straight women are particularly attracted to that. And it has a lot to do with that psychological profile. And I think there is probably a lot of overlap with those two psychological profiles of the bad boy with the dark triad and perhaps the archetypal male cult leader. Yeah, and one cult leader who I wanted to talk about is Winifred Wright, and his family, quote-unquote, is often compared to the Manson family. But Winifred Wright was active in the 1980s and 90s in California. Um, and I think, as as horrifying, I won't get into too many gory details of this, but Winifred Wright's family is almost a textbook example of the destructive cult that we're talking about in terms of a man preying on educated, independent, do-gooder women who basically just sort of fell victim to uh, what he was selling, although it was definitely false. So 
Basically, the rundown is that Winifred Wright uh, is a black man who wrote his family a lot of letters back in the 70s and 80s about the materialistic white establishment and wanting to overthrow the system. And he encountered a bunch of white women who he then convinced to become his wives. And the thing that these women all shared was that they were educated, ambitious. They had privileged backgrounds. One was even the daughter of the Xerox millionaire. And another thing that they shared was a sympathy with Wright's viewpoints about race. They were all white women who agreed with him that, you know, the white uh, dominant society was oppressing black society. And they there was this element almost of white guilt and wanting to help. And he actually encountered a lot of them in reggae clubs. He was a Rastafarian for a time. But he ended up using his first wife as a recruitment tool to bring other women into the family and to bring random women home for him to have sex with. And she would approach other women from the perspective of, do you want to be a model for a women's art project? So very much using the idea of uh, women's power, second wave feminism. You're going to be part of this wonderful women's community if you come with me to this house. But then... They tended to not leave after that. And Wright basically sold the situation as a, quote, African-style matriarchy. But according to this article that I was reading about it, Wright ruled his household with an iron fist, controlling every element of the women's lives, including their wardrobes, reading materials, diets. They were all vegetarian and even the emotions they were allowed to express. Wright could have sex with whoever he wanted. He could get angry. He shot guns off in the house to keep them in a constant state of panic. But they were supposed to cover their heads with scarves, make sure that they wore loose-fitting clothes and looked as modest as possible. He actually told them that he didn't want them to look like sluts. And so this is a scary, horrifying, but perfect example of the manipulative, violent, both sexually, physically, emotionally, and mentally, these violent tactics that these cult leaders will use to keep women absolutely at their mercy. Well, and it it follows that pattern of starting out as a welcome invitation to something more spiritual and progressive, um, which for non-destructive cults, that usually is what people are seeking out and they are sharing ideas and perhaps uh, finding a higher spirituality for them, whatever that might mean. Um, but when it comes to the destructive cults, obviously that erodes away into the cult leader and the structure of the cult, just chipping away at members self-confidence, moral perceptions. There's the isolation factor, uh, breeding mistrust among cult members to the outside world so that they wouldn't even want to seek help outside, um, keeping them exhausted and also just essentially just breaking down who they are as individuals. So they just become literally a part of this ideology. Yeah. And, it's it's so interesting as far and we'll get we'll get into leaving cults in just a second but that whole aspect of mind control thought reform telling these women you know a lot of people look at cult members or even women in destructive scary abusive relationships and they say why won't she just leave why won't she just walk away and when you have someone constantly telling you that you're no good that no one will want you for instance Winifred Wright told his wives that oh you have mixed race children no one will want you after this you're not worth anything you have to stay here it's this whole idea that 
the cult leader is making leaving seem like the scariest, worst, most impossible thing to do in the world. But, I mean, we've talked a lot so far about male narcissistic sociopathic cult leaders, but there have been some women in our history who have stepped into this role as well. Yeah, Joni Johnston highlighted this over at Psychology Today, talking about in 1912, uh, there was a woman named Clementine Barnabet, who was a high priestess of the Church of Sacrifice in Louisiana, who ultimately confessed to killing 17 people as part of her devotion to that cult. And the group itself killed 40 people overall because they believed that human sacrifice could bring them wealth and immortality. And I mean, they were, they were incredibly brutal. They would essentially mutilate the bodies beyond recognition. Um, fast forward to 2012 and you have Sylvia Mraz Moreno and her son Ramon Mraz, who allegedly led a cult that worshiped the female saint of death. La Santa Muerte. And finally, a alleged serial killer members of the Mraz family were arrested for murdering two children and an adult. So uh, women certainly play a role in this as well. It just seems like from the limited research that there is on these cultic practices, a lot of times it is the male leader. But while there might be, you know, his devoted female followers, there are also sort of the second-in-command women, the lead mm-hmm. wives. And for a pop-cultural reference, it makes me think of The Master, uh, which was one of Philip Seymour Hoffman's last films where he plays uh, this cult leader of sorts. And what's most fascinating to me in the film is how th- the relationship between his wife, played by Amy Adams, and him uh, really is the central force of this cult, even though he is the leading personality and, you know, the cult of personality is is all focused around him. But she plays an integral role much in the way when it comes to uh, the Jonestown uh, and People's Temple, the, the ones who drank the Kool-Aid, how leader Jim Jones's wife, Marceline, was often a stand in for him if he was delivering a speech somewhere else. And she would also actively chastise people who questioned him. Yeah. And she was so devoted to her husband and the cult at large that she she didn't even look the other way when Jim Jones took on uh, another partner. This this other woman, I think her name was Carolyn uh, or Catherine. But um. Marceline just sort of accepted that this was how it was and that this is the best thing for her husband and whatever was the best thing for her husband meant it was the best thing for the cult and she would just have to accept it. But she went on in her leadership role of being the cult leader's second in command. Yeah. Now, in the case of that Jonestown cult, which relocated to Guyana so that they were completely isolated from people back home, and 900 members ended up dying in the infamous mass murder slash suicide where they drank the Kool-Aid. But before that, some members had left the cult. Obviously, it is possible to escape these destructive groups, but there are usually phases of leaving that are, are necessary because of the manipulation and brainwashing that's often involved. Yeah, there's a lot of different theories out there about what is the best way to leave a cult, to help someone leave a cult, to kidnap someone and forcibly remove them from a cult. Um, there's a, there were a lot of programs like this back in the 80s, I believe, to sort of reintegrate people into society 
But generally, psychiatrists and, and psychologists agree that there are necessary steps that need to happen if someone is going to essentially kind of wake up and realize I need to get out of here. And a lot of this is coming from psychotherapist Shelley Rosen, who we mentioned earlier. But she points out the importance of asking questions about why you as a member of this group are upset or confused. You know, we talked about that dissonance, the emotional manipulation, the semiotic incompetence. Basically, something is not adding up. She points out that women are socialized to be trusting and caretaking. And so asking questions, especially in this sort of manipulative, scary situation, can be seen as critical or making waves. And so we tend to get the message that to be successful, we have to hide what we know and still speak deferentially to men and other people in positions of power. And so cult members in general are discouraged from asking questions. You're you're criticized for your lack of faith, etc. But asking questions is the critical first step to pinpointing what is wrong with the situation. Because once you start asking the questions, then you get to step two of gaining the competence to pay attention to the clues that you are being deceived. Um, and this involves even paying attention to the different linguistic styles that might be um, integrated into the cult lifestyle of, and how that differs from dominant views. And um, Rosen talks about how, again, as women, we might be socialized to listen more keenly to what men say than to our own, as she calls it, feminine voices. Right. Just trusting the dominant or the masculine in this case over your own voice or the feminine in this case. And then she also talks about having to believe that leaving the group is even an option that will have a successful outcome. You know, we talked earlier about how part of cult leaders manipulation in general is to make its members believe that the outside world is a scary, dangerous place. No one will want you. You will lose all of the support we have given you if you walk out. And so it's made to seem absolutely impossible and the worst option ever. And so once you do make that step of being able to say, hey, I can leave, I can make a life for myself, as many of the people who left before the Jonestown massacre did, that's sort of the the last step in being able to get free of the cult. Now, when it comes to cults, statistics, as I mentioned earlier, are rather vague. Estimates, for instance, of how many people in the U.S. are in cults are in the low hundreds of thousands. Um, and, and we didn't find any hard numbers on the gender breakdown. So we want to leave it to listeners of, of the question of, do you think that women are more prone to joining cults? And is it perhaps harder for us to leave cults? Because obviously there, there are plenty of Men in cults as well. I mean, speaking of the master um, actor, Yaquin Phoenix, who starred in that, ironically, grew up in the cult, the Children of God. Now, that was not the destructive cult spinoff of the Children of God. He he has said that his parents were essentially looking for people to share like minded ideas and, um, you know, find find a deeper spirituality, which is all fine, well and good. But we're really curious to hear from listeners who might have any cultish insights send us your thoughts momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address you can also tweet us at momstuff podcast or message us on facebook and we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break and now back to the show 
So I've got a Facebook message here from Adrian about our Lady Lawyer episode, and she writes, As an aspiring lawyer myself, I really appreciated your episode on dress codes in court. In Canada, where I live, in criminal court, lawyers on both sides wear robes. However, in other matters, they're free to wear what they like. Another dimension to this issue is the controversy around dress codes for parliamentarians. Many run into the exact same problems as what you highlighted in your episode. A pantsuit like Hillary Clinton or Angela Merkel is too strong, but too feminine, and people don't take you seriously. A couple years ago, controversy erupted here when it was revealed that the official photos of some female members of parliament were photoshopped to be more modest. These women were professionally and appropriately dressed, in my opinion, but were apparently showing too much skin for the parliamentary website to handle it. I love dressing professionally. I feel proud and strong and feminine. It's so sad that for many women, this empowered feeling is mitigated by constant sexist scrutiny. So thanks, Adrian. And also, I had no idea about that parliamentary photoshopping. That is ridiculous. Our Lady Lawyer Dress Code episode definitely got a lot of great feedback. You guys keep the letters coming. But we're not just getting letters from lady lawyers about uh, double standards in terms of address. Uh, I have a letter here from Pam who says, I just wanted to let you know that that is not the only work field that has rules and double standards. I am a wildlife field tech and there tends to be a double standard here as well. When I worked for nonprofit organizations, men and women were treated indifferently. The only thing in common about our dress was good work boots. Our bosses never really cared too much about what we wore as long as we were careful out in the field. Anything went. Shorts, tank tops, swimsuits, jeans, whatever. Now that I work in the private sector as a field tech, I have to be careful about what I wear. I've been instructed that I can't wear anything low cut or without sleeves, and my pants can't have worn holes in them. As a field tech, comfort is key if I'm going to be hiking in 100-degree-plus temperatures or wearing a pair of well-broken-in pants versus a pair of brand-new stiff pants. Anyway, keep up the great work and keep the podcast coming. I tend to listen to y'all while hiking at work, and it helps keep me entertained while working in 100-plus or negative 20-degree conditions. So thank you, Pam. I guess we can't get a dress code break anywhere. No, although I will say that the podcast for dress code pretty relaxed. Pretty relaxed, yeah. We're both wearing just bathrobes right now. <laughs> That's right. So, if you have thoughts to send to us, again, momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, including all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with this one, with our sources, so you can follow along with us, head on over to stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 